Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and this is a very special episode that I've been looking forward to for a while, um, and that's because I swung a pretty impressive guest. Um, I am honored to welcome Jordan Schoenig to the podcast. Uh, he is an actual professor of film studies, and um, he was generous enough to come slum it <laughs> on this podcast with me and talk about one of his favorite movies and uh no it's not eight and a half it's not wild strawberries it's not battleship potemkin you nerds uh it's speed racer written and directed by the wachowskis obviously and um that's a movie that i've liked uh a lot for a long time and so I was ecstatic when I found out that this movie was on his syllabus and that it's one of his favorites because there's just no better affirmation of your opinions than when you find out that somebody who has an actual PhD in film uh, approves of your film tastes. So we had a great chat. We talked about a lot of things from the movie to facial reconstruction surgery. So there's something here for everybody. So without any further ado, please enjoy this highly educational episode of We Are Movies. So usually I ask people at the beginning if they consider themselves a movie person or not. I think that's kind of a silly question in this case because you're a literal doctor of film. Um, but I it's guess relevant. I want to... Yes. Well, I, I guess I want to know what, uh, what was the either the movie or the moment or you think the point where you realized that film was going to be such an important part of your life? Um, no, I, I totally think that's relevant and it's something that I'm curious about um, with a lot of people, like the way you ask um, guests on your show. But I also am really curious about it with people who also are in film studies education. Yeah. Because um, I've, I've talked with um, friends of mine, colleagues, and we have this like running joke that within film studies departments and academia, especially amongst graduate students, there are people who quote, unquote, uh, know movies <laughs> and people who don't know movies. Um, and yet everyone is studying movies, right? right. Um, so I, and I've always identified as someone who doesn't know movies. Um, which means that compared to a lot of my peers and um, even some of my students and some of my um, my you know senior colleagues, professors I've worked with, um, I got into movies kind of late. Um, I started getting into them probably only at the tail end of high school and in college. And I wasn't a film studies major. I uh, was a I was a minor because I was like getting my uh, my feet wet in it um and you know it started with like um my brother will like this because uh, he, he says i'm responsible for your track in life and it's kind of true because he like would tell me about cool movies that i would be interested in and when i say cool movies i think it's the kind of gateway films that a lot of um people are are um, familiar with movies like uh like david lynch films um mm -hmm. stuff like that and i don't use gateway pejoratively um because i think david lynch films do function as gateway films for people getting into what a movie can be outside of what seems like a mainstream hollywood fare but also like you know those films uh they last uh like they are still interesting to look at yeah um, so that happened for me like when i was you know 18 maybe 17 18 19 20 and i hadn't really seen much and it took me even longer to get into 
um, quote unquote, old movies, especially classical Hollywood movies. Um, and so I, um, I'm kind of a late bloomer in that respect. Okay. Um, do you remember, was there a specific movie, I guess, particularly a David Lynch movie or something of that sort mm. that you watched that at that time that you thought was like a catalyst maybe to leading you down this path? Yeah, actually. Um, and I, I signed it for the first time this semester and that movie was Mulholland Drive. Oh, it was, uh, it was very formative for me. Like, I distinctly remember being obsessed with that movie and it like giving me nightmares <laughs> and like haunting my, you know, haunting my dreams, but not nightmares in a way that like deterred me for like, like the images and like the feelings it produced, like really stuck with me. Um, yeah. and I think I, I was also like, uh, hooked on the kind of puzzle aspect. And as I've rewatched it and taught it, the puzzle aspect has actually interested me less, but it's like the, the mood and atmosphere that it can produce. That's um, still interesting to me. And I can't quite put my finger on how it's, how it's done. Yeah. That, that, that's a movie that I've always thought was like, obviously there's, there's a fun aspect to trying to piece everything together afterwards and figure out what exactly was happening. And, you know, obviously like David Lynch has his 10 clues (laughs) for that movie. Um, (laughs) But then like, yeah, at the same time, it's like, even if I don't, if even if I can't begin to comprehend what the movie is trying to say or what it's about, it's undeniable just the immediate feelings you get when you watch it. And, and so that's why it's like, I, I see some people trying to uh, explain to me why a movie's great or why I should love a movie when it didn't affect me when I watched it. And that's mm-hmm. always, it's like the logic part of why a movie's good and the emotional response. And those can be very different things. Um, mm-hmm which is why I always stress the idea of there's a difference between saying what your favorite movie is and what a great movie is. <laughs> Cause you can acknowledge mm-hmm. that your favorite movie isn't nearly as good as, as somebody else's favorite movie, which I do a whole lot. So. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. But I'm always curious about what anyone's favorite movie is. Like I really want yeah. to know. Um, right. And sometimes like you're saying, I'll like watch, I'll watch what, what someone's favorite movie is and I'll feel let down and I'll be like, I can't access whatever feeling that has given to them. But sometimes I'll be like, okay, like, yeah. um, I, I, I see something here. I, I've always more. And I mean, I guess that's the whole purpose of this podcast is I'm more interested in what somebody's favorite movie is more than I am what's considered great. And sometimes that crosses over sometimes, you know, like I said, justice's favorite movie is in a lonely place, <laughs> you know? So that would, that could be also on a list of great movies, but then, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not. Um, and that's always, I think what's interested me the most, uh, speaking of which, uh, the movie you chose for this episode is speed racer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also assigned this in a class of yours. Um, yes. and I wasn't in that class, but I did, I saw the list on the syllabus and I was incredibly happy because, I think there's a feeling for all film students when if there's some kind of niche thing you like and a film professor assigns it or admits that they like it to a certain extent, you feel validated. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you were looking for mm-hmm. um, in that opinion. Um, so I, I, with Speed Racer, I wanted, I guess there's two, there's two kind of background things to this. First of all, were you ever a fan of the cartoon? Mm-hmm. Uh No. No. Um, and every time I prepare to talk about this or teach this film, including like, you know, this interview, I was like, Oh, I should watch some more, uh, <laughs> of the, of the cartoon because I've been meaning to do that. 
and I've watched some of it and I include clips from the show in lessons that I teach on the film, but I have not watched a lot enough to like understand, you know, how deeply imbricated the plot of the movie is with plots from the, from the cartoon and like, um, and certain characters, that kind of thing. So I have to admit, no, I had not an expert on the TV show. I haven't, yeah. I've barely watched it. Yeah, me neither, actually. I, I, I remember catching it on TV as a kid. Like, I definitely knew what it was, but um, I actually had to, I did, after I rewatched this movie uh, a couple days ago, and then I um, started researching the plot of the show to find out how much of it matched, because I wanted to know how many, of the, how accurate, I guess, the characters were um, and everything. The other thing is, um, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask you, were you a fan of the Wachowskis before this movie came out? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I had watched Wachowski films and liked them. Um, so when I said I like, wasn't into movies until later, I think, you know, I had watched the matrix films when they came out and I watched them as a kid. Um, I think matrix one was 1999. So I was about 13. Um, okay. uh, you know, a 13 year old boy is pretty good market for, um, for the matrix franchise. Yeah. Um, I was definitely into them. Um, I don't think I had developed a sophisticated enough sense of movie aesthetics to, to wholly understand the way in which the frown, the franchise took a downturn with each subs, a successive sequel. I've, I've right. started to understand that a bit better. <laughs> Um, since I have kind of watched more films and kind of uh, maybe rewatched them a little bit, but I've barely rewatched the second and third films. I have rewatched the first one a couple times, um, uh, one of which was, uh, was fairly recently. Um, and I remember thinking that the first 30 minutes of it were quite good. Um, and then I didn't feel that way about the rest of it. <laughs> um, but the way the film sets up an entire universe, um, uh, with visual storytelling and with like creating spectator inferences that get paid off in these really smart ways. I just thought it was awesome um, and, and really clever. So in a sense, I grew up with the Wachowski films. Um, they were always in the back of my mind, but I became a Wachowski's fan, if I can say that, uh, with the movie Speed Racer, which okay. is, um, I, I, I like no Wachowski film nearly as much as I like <laughs> speed racer but i should also say i haven't watched much of sense eight um i'm curious to watch it um i'm also very curious to watch bound which i'm very embarrassed to say i haven't watched um and being a film academic i think bound is one of the films that gets taught and discussed a lot maybe the most um out of the wachowski uh body of work yeah that was their first right bound right. i think yeah mm -hmm. um the, the, their first of Two collaborations with Joe Pantoliano also, which is very important. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so did you see Speed Racer in theaters when it came out? No, no, not at all. I wasn't cool enough to <laughs> see it in theaters. I, I remember seeing the trailer, though. Um, okay. like I, like, and I remember, and I was thinking about this very question in kind of preparation for this interview. I was like, when did I first encounter this movie? What were my first thoughts about it? Um, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, huh, like, <laughs> um, ooh, like colorful. And yeah. then as soon as I heard it came out, I heard that it was bad. <laughs> um, and I wasn't enough into watching films or like uh, pursuing them or seeking interesting films out 
that it didn't even occur to me to, to check it out. Um, I also hadn't developed a sense of my own taste. It turns out that the taste that I would give, I would you know, assess for myself right now is deeply fulfilled by the movie Speed Racer. <laughs> um, but I didn't know that when the movie came out, what, in 2008? Looks, yeah, same summer as The Dark Knight, which yes. I always like to point out. <laughs> Indeed. I, uh, once I discovered that, I like to point that out, too. Um, it really does. And, you know, when I talk about this movie with students, that's something that I like to bring up. It's um, just discussing uh, the dominance of, of realism applied to certain pre-sold properties has been the trajectory in Hollywood for a long time. And then Speed right. Racer came out just as that was like re- reaching the, the, the full beginning of it with the dark Knight, <laughs> and no one liked it. Yeah. Um, but I, so I will say I didn't see it in the theaters, but I do have this memory of going to graduate school in 2011. And I remember, I have a, t- a tiny memory of um, one of my roommates um, who is, by the way, a person who quote unquote knows movies, oh, okay. um, mentioning Speed Racer and being like, that movie is awesome. And um, that like stuck in my mind because I, I didn't say this out loud because I was very self-conscious about, about knowing movies and stuff like that. But I, in my mind, I said, really? It's awesome? And I trusted this person's taste. Um, a, you know, a huge movie buff um, and also a PhD who was older than I was. And so I kept that in the back of my mind. And at some point, maybe in 2013, I can't remember the year, I downloaded the film and I watched it and I thought it was something um, really interesting and exciting um, and it had little things that just made me squeal with delight. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was, I think, in 2017 that I taught it for the first time in a film class. Okay. Um had you heard of it being taught in a film class at any point before you did it? Or did you, did you see that as quite a bold move when you decided to? You know, I felt it was a little bold. <laughs> um, but the way I usually think about uh, assigning classes uh, or assigning films in, in film classes is I, I, I try to give a sense of a, of a canon, but I also have like, it's like, it's like one for them, one for me, or maybe two for them, one for me. Sure. Um, but also I had known that Speed Racer had gained this kind of underground or maybe ivory tower uh, acceptability. Yeah. I wasn't fully aware of it, but I had like heard enough smart people who were, you know, educated in film studies say it was an interesting film. And once I had kind of thought through my idea for this lesson and I had, hadn't just assigned it, I had a lesson that, uh, attached to it. I was like, I can't think of a better movie for this. And I was like, the students are going to hate me for it. Or or a few will love me for it. I don't know. Um, I was a little nervous, um, but it's always been one of the one of my favorite movies to teach. I get different reactions. Um, there's a few films that I've taught with similar things in mind that I won't teach again um, because <laughs> they uh, maybe they they are say too mm, offensive to, to to normative tastes. Sure. Maybe, which, I, which is a value that I believe in, but sometimes I, I don't have the fortitude to stand by. I went, to, I went to the film collective screening for, uh, for Pink Flamingos. And, oh, me too. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, you were there? Okay. Yeah, yeah and you could, you could feel the collective regret amongst everybody who was there <laughs> the moment it started. So, but yeah, that feeling always exists. <laughs> um, was that your first time seeing the film? No, no, I'm a I'm a big John Waters fan. That's okay. uh, something I don't often go around telling people. But uh, no, you should. It depends <laughs> yeah. on who's who's around, right? That's it. Depends on who I'm talking to. Exactly. 
I, I, my tastes are varied enough that like, if I'm talking to my grandpa, I just talk about Westerns. And sure. then if I'm, you know, talking to my cooler friends, I'll talk about John Waters. It depends. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But Speed Racer, yeah, I think Speed Racer is the perfect movie um, it, it when teaching film studies because it's like, it is the kind of movie that would make uh, Bazan's head explode. Like, it's <laughs> as far away from realism as I think, especially as movies currently, from maybe 2000 on, we've become more obsessed with realism. And so, and that's probably a testament as to why this movie was a quote-unquote flop when it came out. I guess it wasn't, it didn't make the expected amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um and then obviously, like I said, we said came out the same summer as The Dark Knight. So The Dark Knight was ushering in this new version of, of how we wanted our um, our comic booky, you know, adaptations to be. And, and so you could say it was the wrong time. I, I think in a way, Speed Racer was a bit ahead of its time because now we are, you know, we have things like Into the Spider Verse, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of bringing back the, you know, for Ragnarok, we're bringing back like mm-hmm. the campier aspects of, of those things. And, you know, Speed Racer kind of got there first. And I also think it's a testament to the Wachowskis and that after they made Bound and then they made the Matrix trilogy and the Matrix ushered in a whole uh, subgenre of Matrix ripoffs, uh, you know, movies like The One with Jet Li and all of these movies <laughs> just trying to do the Matrix. <laughs> It could have been really easy for them to just fall in line and just do more Matrix esque movies, but mm-hmm. uh, and at the time, it's I, I can only imagine. Uh, Two thousand eight, I was you know eight or nine. I couldn't have comprehended this, but the directors, the writer director duo of the Matrix making Speed Racer is crazy now. Looking back, that that was their next <laughs> <Yeah>. big <laughs> career move after that trilogy. Um, yeah. So yeah, within the context of their career, it's it's very strange. But yeah, I guess I want to know: do, do you consider yourself more of a, a formalist then, in terms of how you judge movies, for, in terms of your taste? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, just like you were saying earlier, that you have a pretty wide and varied set of tastes, and that you kind of are able to shape the conversations, the film conversations you have based on what your immediate audience is. Um, I feel very similarly. And the more people I meet who are really interested in film, um, you know, no matter who they are, it does seem to be a trend that the more interested you are in film, the less predisposed you are to a certain set of criteria or set of genres, right? Right. Um, it's almost everyone, at least in academic film studies, is both a specialist and a generalist. Like, you have to know the entire history of, of movies because you can't, um, because it's only a uh, hundred some odd years old. Um, and it's, it would be odd to, to say, um, you know, I'm into these kinds of movies and, and these movies alone, even though I think... Um, I think that works. That makes a lot of sense for people. Um, and, yeah. um, and I've always personally had a hard time narrowing down my, um, the kinds of movies that I like, or say, what is the guiding principle, um, of how I judge movies? Do I think they should be as real as possible? Um, whatever that might mean. Um, am I impressed by say formal experimentation? I do have to say though, that there is something, uh, about, um, form that does obsess me. 
Um, but in a way, you can talk about a realist film in, in those terms also, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, when I watch a movie like Speed Racer, I always want to, like, stop and slow it down and, like, replay two and a, and a half seconds of things. <laughs> and be like, wait a minute, did you just see what happened? Um, right. Like, did you, like, can we actually narrate what just happened in those two and a half seconds? Like, that is an amazing element of, like, motion graphic design. Like, let's just appreciate that. Um, right. And that is mostly the level in which I think Speed Racer is, is astounding. Though every time I watch it, I, I learn new things from it. Um, but, you know, I will say, um, yeah, am I a formalist? <laughs> Maybe more so. Maybe more okay. so than a realist. But I don't know. We watched uh, Roma in, in, in the class right. that you were in, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was, I, you know, the way I was uh, approaching that was to think about, you know, someone like Andre Bazan and, real, and realism. Um, and that's also a very formalist, realist film, right? Everything feels as if it's absolutely designed. Right? Yes. Because right? um, every yeah. shot looks like a very planned painting in that movie. Right, precisely. But then, like, you might say, uh, you know, Pink Flamingos. Uh, we think of that as camp and trash. But, we, but there's also a kind of realism attached to the DIY, um, unplanned, rough aesthetic, right? right? Um, like, if you like that film, it's not probably because you love how meticulously structured uh, it, it looks, or you believe that how messy it seems isn't the result of meticulous structuring. Um, mm. It's a tough, tough thing to come down on. Um, if we were to simplistically look at it, it seems the, the, the sort of the layman's idea of realism is if it's colorful, it's not realistic. So, mm, yeah, you know, The Dark Knight, those movies are literally darker uh, visually. And then, you know, if you, comparing Pink Flamingos to Roma, obviously Roma is a black and white film. Uh, mm. And people just kind of automatically associate a darker color palette with that's that's what the real world is, um, mm. which is kind of funny because, you know, that's not, not obviously always the case. Um and so I, Speed Racer is obviously an incredibly colorful movie. Uh, but also there are things about the form in Speed Racer that uh, the, the, the movie is not even trying to attempt to make you believe that you're seeing a real environment. Mm-hmm. But that's, and that's something that I think has surprisingly has made it age well, uh, is the fact that a lot of movies from that time, they use a whole lot of effects, you know, the, the uh, Star Wars prequels, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that doesn't age well because in the Star Wars prequels, there is clearly a goal to make you think that you are watching something real. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I get the impression watching Speed Racer that that's never the intention. And, and, and that's because there's a lot of shots specifically. I'm thinking like scenes like when, uh, uh, when what's his name? Um, when uh, Royalton shows mm-hmm. up at uh, the racer's house and they open the door and his helicopter's behind him. Yes. It's shots like that (laughs) where there's absolutely no depth. Like it looks like it could be a helicopter far behind him or it's a tiny helicopter right over his shoulder. And there's no, there's no attempt to, to, to apply. Cause I kept thinking watching this movie, I kept thinking of like James Cameron and avatar. And I kept thinking Mm. about how avatar is this incredibly effects filled movie uh, which ironically came out around the same time, I think, too, yeah. mm-hmm. like the year after. Um, 
And that's a movie where James Cameron, despite the fact that it's all CG, he's very obsessed with making it look like something that a real camera would be able to capture. Yeah. Uh, everything's very, a lot of the shots are locked down. You don't see impossible camera movements outside of what you could actually do in real life. Mm-hmm. And then it's incredible that this is the complete opposite. This movie is not even, like they don't, they don't adjust focus to make it seem like something's far in the background because they're not trying to hide the fact that it's all animated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And like some of the super deep focus shots in Speed Racer where you have like someone's head super close to the lens and someone really far away, which, you know, funnily enough, if you're a, you know, a student of film, you think of that as like, yeah, it looks more (laughs) like a a split diopter than it does like a Citizen Kane shot, right? right? But like, but there are similar effects and you might think of, you know, one or the other. Um, But when I, if you look at the interviews with the, um, the special effects supervisors, um, you know, they were thinking about the way in which you'll have big heads in the foreground and, you know, people sharp in the background with, with cartoons, especially with anime cartoons, right? Right. Because you don't have focus uh, when, when you draw something. You have to, if, you, if you're going to do it, you have to artificially produce that. Um, and at least in terms of um, the anime, the 60s anime that they're drawing on, you will get shots like that, um, that only seem extreme and cartoonish when they're replicated in, in speed racer. Um, uh, and you know, part of the way that I think about the film when I teach it usually is I think about the relationship between, you know, the digital revolution in cinema and animation. And it seems like a perfect film for understanding the, the way those two things are go together. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it's not quite spider verse, right? Like, (laughs) Um, Spider-Verse seemed to like do this homage to other media in a way that everybody loved. And that seems like organically beautiful and cohesive. Um, and that doesn't have like the seams of, of composite imagery just sticking out <laughs> at you and making you like, feel like, Ugh. something yeah. about that is like wrong to my eyes. <laughs> no, Spider-Verse looks like a cartoon. It also looks like a comic book strip. Mm. But it's also like beautifully coherent, and everyone loved that movie, and, and I also loved that film too. Yeah, me but, too. Um, it takes a lot of the same forms of description that Speed Racer takes, yet it does not produce the same aesthetic <laughs> uh, effect. Um, uh, nor does it ever get the sense of derision that Speed Racer got from critics and uh, and some of my students, frankly. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure there was. <laughs> uh, um, I'm glad I wasn't there for those because I don't know if I would have been able to um, control my anger. Uh, it's just here and there. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, I, and I love when people you know, express derision yeah. and then someone comes to the defense and it goes back and forth. No, yeah. I, I, I'd ha- rather have it that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding, obviously. I, I, can, uh, I can handle disagreement pretty well. <laughs> but I, I think... Um, Watching this and particularly comparing it to maybe movies like uh, Dragon Ball Evolution, right, which is uh, an adaptation wow. of Dragon Ball, and that's a movie where obviously the the idea was this is going to be, you know, we're we're going to do Dragon Ball for the high schooler age. We're going to play put Goku in high school, and that's <laughs> it, you know there there was like a there's a you know, I, I'm thinking when I watch a movie like that, I'm picturing the boardroom. I'm picturing the guys going like, how are we going to make this appeal to high schoolers and something like that. And then I watch, you know, the last airbender, the M night Shyamalan uh, adaptation. And that's a movie where you you're taking an animated show where one person can, can contort the earth 
And then in the movie, you have six guys, it takes six guys to lift one rock, like, because they need to, <laughs> you know, they need to keep it grounded. They need to keep it acceptable oh, to our eyes. Um, and then I think the reason Speed Racer is maybe the best adaptation of <laughs> any anime mm. is because of its just complete, um, uh, the, you know, this, this uh, total commitment to recreating the feelings and the images of that show. And even like, it's really interesting to see a real world uh, depiction of characters that kind of only exist in an anime world. Like uh, the fact like his uh, speeds, little brother uh, Spriddle, you know, yes. he's the chubby kid who's purely motivated by eating food. That's <laughs> his entire character. movement, And that's such an anime thing but then to see that played out on screen <laughs> with so much commitment is is equally great because that kind of warrants why you would do a live action adaptation it's like what would i want to see what this would look like in the context of, of real people interacting do you understand what i mean you know yeah, absolutely and and the character of spritel is usually one that divides folks for precisely these reasons right sure. Um, either you're going to kind of see the absolute commitment with a character play, you know, who is a, a younger brother, who is a kid who is like always screwing up the tone of the film. <laughs> like there's that scene where um, Royalton is like giving his speech, uh, a very a beautiful scene, right? And a very kind of sincere, maybe overly sincere scene where he basically explains like the sinister underbelly of corporate fixing. Um and there's like an organic aesthetic cohesion to the to the way the camera is revolving, and it's just like this beautiful yes. scene. But it's interrupted with Spritel and his uh, and his um, the, the the chimpanzee yeah. uh, pal, just like doing ridiculous things for like maybe a twelve second shot, and I go back and forth yes. between them. Um, and so, like, I think like this tonal, I wouldn't say inconsistency. It's like bouncing between tones quite mm -hmm. deliberately. Um, so as to not let seriousness or say the primacy of, of plot, like, um, like ever absorb too much of your attention at any point, you know? And yeah. I also love, and, and people usually love this when I show it, that scene with Royalton, you know, being an asshole and then, um, and then we like hate him. It ends with Spritel like flicking him off and it's always it's like a beautifully timed gag yeah uh, it's like the moment where spinal is like annoyingly interrupting the this the seriousness of a scene but but there you're like uh it's, it's like he he can be kind of funny um, right yeah well and the fact that we, we cut to spritel and his antics and those collide at the end of the scene there's still a a logic to why we're cross-cutting it's not like they they don't if they didn't collide at the end if it didn't end with you know, the payoff of Spritel giving him the finger, then I don't think it would necessarily warrant cutting to him and the chimp on like a little go-kart uh, while Freebird plays in the background. Yes. Which is great. Yes. A, a Freebird knockoff, but distinctively Freebird. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was clearly, it was that like, <laughs> dun, 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 like I, I recognized it, which Freebird in a movie is almost a, a cliche of its own at this point. Um, right, but it's definitely not Freebird, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it I also because I was I was thinking about that. I was like, that is Freebird, but it's definitely right. not Freebird. And also, did you pick up that they're playing a version of Box Minuet and G throughout a lot of the sequences where Royalton is um, is giving a tour of his no. facilities? Like, it's clearly <laughs> Box Minuet and G, but like toyed with. I don't know why it is. 
it's yeah. like a kind of um, piece of music that um, a child learning piano would play. Um, you know, it goes. Yeah. If you keep that in mind, you watch that scene again. You're like, huh? Why did they make their <laughs> motif um, uh, Bach and just like make it barely discernible? I don't know. Um, I, I, yeah, that's. I, there, there's so many interesting choices and this is going to be a weird comparison but one thing that popped into my head thinking about this movie afterwards was i thought of uh, gus van sant's psycho remake um oh. which oddly enough i found out gus van sant was originally considered to direct this movie when it was in development <laughs> hell in the 90s uh there was he was going to direct it johnny depp was going to play speed racer uh i think racer x was going to be played by henry rollins which is uh <laughs> A great choice, because I think no matter what, Racer X has to have a distinctive chin, uh, which Matthew Fox mm. in this movie is still, you know, anytime you cover up somebody's eyes, their chin has to be a perfect chin. And Indeed. Uh, they, yeah, they pulled that off. But I was thinking of the Psycho remake, because I thought of how you could tell the, 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 I think the goals of the filmmaker and the goals of the studio were very different. Whereas, like, so in the Psycho remake, you can tell the studio just thought, what properties do we have? Let's uh, let's remake Psycho. And then you had the guy who was hot off Goodwill Hunting, and they were like, all right, yeah, what do you want to do? And then he said, I want to remake Psycho. And for him, though, it was a weird little experiment where he was obsessed with recreating the original movie mm-hmm. and wasn't really interested in actually making a, a movie. Um, and then also right. got a bunch of committed actors to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And... I thought of Speed Racer and I thought of how this was, you know, this was a company taking its a title that it owned and trying to readapt like an old cartoon and then having the Wachowskis who were hot off of doing, you know, the Matrix trilogy kind of deciding they also wanted to do something weird with it, um, which oddly enough is also a perfect, you know, not in the same way as the Psycho remake, but a perfect recreation of the original show. Um, and also because I think of the fact that they were the Wachowskis, they got like a really good cast <laughs> to, to play all the characters. Um, yeah. And it's not, I'm not comparing the qualities of these, these movies or the watchabilities sure. of either of them, but it was where I felt like it was interesting where the, 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 the filmmakers were kind of weaponizing the cynicism of the company by saying, yeah, 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 we'll do your, you know, your cynical little like remake of an old thing, but we're going to get to do whatever we want with it. Um, and that I think is wonderful. <laughs> no, yeah, they're just like you tell me about that makes me just think about how lucky, how fortunate I feel we are that it ended up this way. Yeah. Um, because when you think about, like you were saying earlier, it's a, it's a surprise that the Wachowskis ended up making this film after making The Matrix. You wonder if they were seized by inspiration when confronted with this opportunity. Yeah. They're like, oh, huh. We have this script for a Speed Racer cartoon. Um, have we, you know, maybe we've always wanted to do something like this. Or like, what if we took it this direction? And then just like, you know, the imaginative juices just like went in a, in a direction that, that nothing had ever really done before. Yes. Um, well, and that's where, um, as I was saying, like there's a, um, the, they're not trying to make you think the, the the environments you're seeing are real, but then there are certain cases, particularly as the movie, because the movie starts off so crazy, you think, how is this movie going to build anything bigger? But then oh. in the climax, they kind of go to a point of just 
of surrealism where you're saying like the kinds of things you're seeing could not possibly be happening where uh, there's like a moment where Speed's car turns the track into like a colorful swirl, which is one of my favorite parts. When he's and, going through the tunnel? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Well, there's, well, then there's, there's an overhead shot. Yeah. Where you just see, he oh, leaves behind. Okay. Like, yes. Yeah. He leaves behind yes, like yes, the swirl. Yes painting and that's where i kind of thought of this movie in terms of like a a scott pilgrim type of movie or certainly yeah or or a fear and loathing in las vegas even maybe where a lot of the form can be blamed on it being about a character's perspective uh in a lot Uh, of ways yeah yeah sometimes i use that um that device to over explain or maybe explain (laughs) uh uh, the sequence that I think uh, turns most people off, which is the opening sequence or the opening of the opening sequence, since the opening sequence has about 17 different parts. Um, <laughs> when you're seeing the backstory with a young uh, speed racer riding around with his brother, but before that he's, um, uh, he's in school and he rushes outside to get picked up by his brother. And you're shocked with this, environment that looks like it was assembled in a kind of 1990s like early adobe 3d <laughs> uh like uh you know video maker and all of the objects look as if they were picked from a library of yeah. like 1980s um like uh, uh lawnmower man era uh, <laughs> effects and you're like what um, and I, I've had students say like that, that made them nauseous, like that, that made them want to vomit. I don't think they meant that it actually made them want to throw up, but that they were trying to communicate what they thought was an absolute disgust, uh, of, of kind of, um, you know, CG taste. Um, but of course, you know, the rest of the film does not look like that. The rest of the film doesn't look real, but it doesn't look as if it was made with primitive graphics um, yeah. And it is filtered through the eyes of a child. It's very clearly um, focalized, right? That sequence is made up of all of these memories. Um, and by the way, the first that that opening sequence is astounding to me. Um, oh yeah, it's Just amazing. The, the <laughs> I, I I'm all I especially love um, like efficient character development, and yeah. the way that's all accomplished through you know. The, you're following the race and then you cut to these important people in his life and their own perspectives of his yes. past is that is like brilliant. I, I think it's, it's so good. And I'll, I'll be honest. It took me about watching the movie three times to realize what was even happening at a narrative level. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, I'm not a really good um, movie uh, story follower because I easily get distracted by, by things that are nice to look at. And this film does that because I'm just distracted by, by what's happening. Um, but it took me a while to realize just how, how dense and intricate the opening uh, exposition is and how yeah. it's weaving between characters and the way it chooses to transition from one. Um, it's, you know, imagine like Citizen Kane, but the transitions between, <laughs> were, 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 between characters, you know, speaking about this person, which is, you know, similar right. to what's happening here, were done about like every minute and the transitions involved really slippery effects, uh, like kind of morphing effects where you right. either you pan from one thing to another. Um, or the common one is a character is moving across the screen and as they're moving across the screen, they're transitioning the environments. Right, them, sort of. right. The, uh, it's the acting like a Star Wars wipe. Sort it's of. actually <laughs> the uh, the human figure wipes. Yes, sometimes I, I call them. Which that's good. 
I've never seen a, a movie do it, but it's like the signature effect of this film is yeah. have characters as two-dimensional, you know, cardboard cutouts slide across the, <laughs> the surface of the screen and then reveal something new behind them, right? Um, or like one of the, the most astounding ones and also the, the most, one of the most beautiful and efficient is when it's like a, we're watching, we're, we're, we're hovering um, uh, over a gap in the track. It's a, it's a jump and... Um, I forget if it's Speed's car or if it's uh, Speed's brother Rex's car coming at us. And then as it comes at us, it slows down in slow motion. And then the other person's story's car comes and like drives through it. And that is the way yeah. in which we, we move from story from And, from and it's one like a ghost car. Sort it's of. a ghost That's, car. Yeah. Right. So you're just like, oh man, just the way like the, the aesthetics of transition as like a, as like a um, obstacle in filmmaking right yeah is like something that this film takes on and like tries to invent new ways to move from point a to point b or from focal point character a to focal point character b and it's like insane i always want to be like snow slow down watch that again did you see what happened that's crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i and when i was looking up i was looking up bad reviews for this movie which i'll get to uh later i'll read some of them but um one of the common complaints I kept coming across were people saying that this movie had a bad script. And Mm. I, so I'm wondering, I think for a lot of them, they were looking at like dialogue that they didn't like. Like there's a line that John Goodman has, which is my favorite line where he says ninjas more like ninjas, more like ninjas after they (laughs) single-handedly defeat a bunch of ninjas, which, you know, we can agree to disagree on that line because I think it's great, but um, it is great. It is great. (laughs) But there's, the way I think that a lot of the scenes are constructed to um, to get across information is really smart. And, and one th- that comes to mind is uh, after Royalton gives that really great speech about the history of, of rigging the races, um, he tells Speed what, like he tells him basically what will happen if he doesn't sign with them. And we're seeing this visually, like we're seeing what will happen Mm -hmm. as he's explaining it. Mm -hmm. And then speed decides not to sign with him. And then we cut to speed in the aftermath of that happening because it's like really smart. What we've been seeing as we've been assuming it's just a visual visual representation of what Royalson has been saying. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the scene, you realize this is what actually has happened after these, after the scene. Yes. Indeed is like blew my mind when the scene ended. <laughs> yes. No, I was thinking about that very thing as I was watching it this morning, like that kind of thing. And I was, and I, I know there's an, there's an analog or there's like a couple other films that have done something like this, but I can't yeah. think of them. So, and it's bothering me. So if you think of it, do let me know. Um, I've definitely seen it before too. I, I yeah, I'll, I'll message you if I, <laughs> if, if I can think of one. And I know it'll come to me too. Cause I'm, I'm sure it's a film that I've, that I've taught or something. Um, but yeah, yeah, th- no, that's interesting. Um, that people say that it has a bad script, which is, um, that's the thing that I think about as I watch it again and again. It's like, is this mo- does this movie have a bad script? Is it poorly constructed? Is it messy? Which is like another accusation people uh, might make. Is it overlong? Which <laughs> I'll admit that, you know, the number of times I've watched this, I, I have gotten bored um, at parts. Um, but I think I'm... I'm only now, like after watching it like seven times, <laughs> like starting to appreciate all the levels of its brilliance, which I hate saying that because I want to, you know, the way I've usually approached it is like, oh, it's great for these things. And that's what we're thinking about today. 
Um, we can set aside these other things. But now I'm like, no, I think this movie is a lot smarter uh, than I've been giving it credit for, even <laughs> though it was one of my favorite movies. Um, and I think the, the cleverness of the campy lines, like um, Nanja, um, which was my Zoom password when I discussed this uh, <laughs> recently in class, um, another line I love is, um, is a sentence that begins with inspector, detector, suspects, <laughs> yeah. um, which I, I also love. Like they, I assume that inspector detector is the name of the cartoon character and they're like, Oh, we got to do something with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is wonderful. I wrote down other silly things that I thought were, were great. Um, the middle finger, which I've said is, is great. Oh, this one has gotten a few laughs um, when I've showed it, and uh, and I think it is quite great. When um, though it's not a line of dialogue, but it is a um, it is a gag when John Goodman's character um, Speed's father is wrestling said ninjas, and you do a a, a rapid zoom, or, or like as, as soon as he starts grappling with a ninja, and you're like ever so slightly surprised that he's such a good fighter, a rapid zoom on his uh, ring finger to see that he has a uh, a wrestling uh, tournament <laughs> champion ring on yes. his finger yeah. to like briefly and punk and like punctuate the fact that oh, there's something about this dad that you didn't know. <laughs> um, like he's like oh, he has like super dad strength because he wrestled in college. Yeah. Um, it's it's wonderful. Uh, and it, and the, <laughs> what brings it home is the fact that it's like it's within the shot. He's like grabbing the ninja, and the ninja looks down and sees the ring, and the ninja <laughs> goes like, "Oh no!" Like he reacts by see, like. <laughs> and Which then we is, get, yeah, yeah, we get this character development across just from a single ring, <laughs> just from a single ring. And you could imagine that maybe oh, would they at that moment go to like a quick. <laughs> like a quick uh, a you know, flashback, a little montage of how he wanted to be a wrestler. Yeah. They, they didn't, um, but I love that. Like a you know a trained assassin is intimidated by like a college <laughs> wrestling ring by a guy yeah. who's like you know in his early fifties. Um, it's it's great, and I and I think like the middle finger, which uh, gag, which isn't funny on its own. It's funny because of the way it's visually represented with, with things like timing and placement. Um, right. And this is not the it's kind like of It's like right as doors are shutting, specifically, when he does it. Like, as they're being yeah. forced to leave, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's surprising that this movie, which isn't all that funny in a lot of the little gags that it has, I think. Like, I'm not often laughing with this movie. <laughs> but I can tell, like, when it's doing those things, it's, like, going for it. Like, yeah. And it's, like, the precise... Um, you know, you know, precise balance of, of actually good, uh, you know, humoristic screenwriting with a great visual sense. Yeah. And even when a joke doesn't land, I think it's the sincerity behind mm -hmm. every attempt and just the sincerity behind the whole movie that like, I don't really feel bad about it. It's not like if I'm watching like the Yogi Bear movie and like you see like these actors who just they're like oh, i'm just gonna pretend there's a cgi bear and they they're like going yogi and you can tell they're just waiting for this to be over <laughs> there's like a there's a tired <laughs> aspect to the humor in, in a movie like that um but i was watching some of the featurettes and interviews with the cast after because i have this i have this blu-ray copy of it and i, I want to thank you for 
choosing this movie because I had never actually watched this Blu-ray copy that I have until oh, now. Oh, I want um, that. I was just thinking about like, are there featurettes on whatever disc this is offered on? Because I've always yeah. wanted to watch them. It's like the only movie, or I, you know, I do like featurettes, but I, I'm actually interested in seeing these. <laughs> uh, there is a the the big one is a Speed Racer Carfu Cinema, which is like a big behind the scenes look at the uh, process of of making the the scene the action scenes. Oh, wonderful. Um, but I, which by the way, I don't know if there is a 4K, but if there isn't, release a 4K, you cowards. Um, <laughs> if there, whoever owns this, uh, the rights. But um, yeah, but uh, I, w- watching it, the, like there are interviews with the cast and they were all clearly like having a really fun time doing this movie, which partially it's probably because they were in an air conditioned studio most of the time doing it on a green screen. Sure. Um, but I think one of the, coolest things about this movie and i want i'm wondering what you're thinking about this because it is such a cartoonish movie but i feel like the performances from the main cast are fairly grounded like um even like john goodman is you know he they put a mustache on him they made him look like like this cartoon character and all of the you know the costumes and stuff he's very colorful he's over the top but his actual performance you know i'd say Walter and the Big Lebowski is a more over-the-top performance than, than oh, what he gives certainly. in the movie. You know? And then you have like Susan Sarandon, um, who early on she's having a heart-to-heart scene with Speed. And yeah. I just kept thinking, like, I was like, this is like, she's just actually acting. Like she's not even <laughs> she's not goofing around. Like no. they're all playing it like they're in a real movie. <laughs> a quote a re- quote unquote real movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's not hamming it up. And I think that has something to do with like the the mode of sincerity uh yeah. in this film. Like that that sequence where she's having that heart to heart with speed and you get some of these, you know, uh, pseudo hallmarky lines about, uh, about racing as art. I've kind of gone back and forth about those lines. Do I think they're like self-consciously, you know, sincere to the point of hokiness or do I think like, you know, the film is sophisticated enough in its, uh, in its script to actually say like, you know, this is a film about, you know, uh, art and commerce and, and capitalism, (laughs) like corruption, uh, uh, corrupting, what is otherwise like an aesthetically meaningful experience for people who are, who are racers or who are, who spectate. Right. Um, I guess something we're thinking about now with, with sports, um, you know, being canceled and what sports means to, to people and how it is a corporation that, you know, makes the world billions of dollars, but also it's like right. meaningful in this almost like embarrassingly powerful way. Like people need their sports right now. And yeah. I don't think we should like be, um, kind of bashful about that. Um, so yeah, like, the performances seem to allow us to grant the movie's themes a kind of weight um, yeah. that in before when I used to watch the film, I used to just kind of dismiss as being hollow. But the more I watch it, I'm like, actually, this is kind of a, a thoughtful depiction about the way <laughs> in which the stock market uh, is like the chief um, engine that drives like um, sports and especially competitive racing and the way in which like industry and sport are intermingled. Like right. I've always had a really hard time following the, the speech that Royalton gives because it's kind of right. technical and, and it goes very it, fast <laughs> and it goes very fast. And like, first of all, that makes me realize like this is both a kid's film and it can't just be a kid's film. Cause I'm like, <laughs> tell me the nine-year-olds who are following this. Right. Um, but I don't know. It's like, I think it is a kind of sophisticated movie and it doesn't just want it to be a bunch of campy cartoon performances. Um, yeah. 
like I mean, maybe Christina Ricci's character has some some lines that are that are that are campy, and I, and I am actually yeah. grateful for them. Like that that Nanja line is preceded by an almost equally important line where she says something like, "What are those ninjas?" And like she <laughs> she, I think she delivers it really well, and it's like a yeah. perfect. <laughs> it's a perfect setup christina ritchie's perfect for this role too because she just she has like big eyes like she she fits the character with the hairstyle and everything she looks kind of like like a cartoon character but uh, like you said yeah like she does have a couple of moments that get corny but at the same time like when she's having her heart-to-heart conversations with speed like in his car on the cliff um like i kind of believe it (laughs) like i mean you know, I don't believe this is some actress, you know, just contractually obligated to be in a kid's movie. Like I, I, I feel like there is some, there's performance between uh, her and um, Emil Hirsch, who's also a really good actor <laughs> playing speed. Um, He's quite right for this role too. I yes. think, um, even though I, I'm not sure how I feel about Emil Hirsch, but I know that friends of mine have put him on the list of, uh, actors who have punchable faces. I'm not sure if that's fair. Um, it's just something that I've heard and I can maybe understand that he has kind of like, um, a wink at the camera, uh, cuteness to him that might be grating for certain audiences. But I think he's absolutely right for, for this, uh, cartoon role. I'll be honest for a second. I thought he was the guy who played young Han Solo, uh, in Solo. Uh, no, Alden yeah. Ehrenreich right. at first when it first started that I looked at it I was like oh it's Neil Hirsch and I was like yeah I've seen Into the Wild and stuff like that Sure, yeah. but it was funny because I guess you could kind of pair them it was and it was the exact moment when he like made a smirk like he was getting in the car and he did like a it was a very like Harrison, young Harrison Fordy kind of smirk and I was uh, like yeah and now that you say that I'm like I can see that being a punchable face I think he it helps though in this movie he's not he doesn't have stubble. <laughs> Sometimes he has stubble and uh and it, oh. it's, he has like a rat stash. So maybe that's I digress, but um that could uh, be part of it. Um, yeah, maybe the punchability is is he the is he he's like the kind of the villainous drug dealer in that movie Alpha Dog? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think they they play on his uh his kind of like overconfident yeah. Um, you know, small but but cute and sly yeah. kind of uh, kind of character traits in his in his face. But uh, then uh, he was just in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the uh, Tarantino's oh, movie. And he was oh, I forgot Jay Sebring, and in that movie, oh, I right. think he's he's you know he's kind of a cute, likable guy, and you mm-hmm. kind of and I'm telling you, it's all in the stubble. That's my personal <laughs> opinion. He just doesn't have a stubble face. Right, maybe he has stubble and alpha dog. That you just put stubble on a on an otherwise innocent looking right uh, young man, and you'll get a kind of sly, overconfident punchability. <laughs> it's um, that. What are you doing with a? You don't. Belo- it's that. What are you doing with your dad's suit on? Kind of uh, mentality. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I wanted to also uh, compare that to uh, the actor playing Royalton is very over the top. Uh, because the movie has no reservations about the fact that he is a, he, he is a cookie cutter evil (laughs) villain. Like that's certainly pretty much all, you know, he's the evil capitalist, uh, who buys games. Um, and you know, he's a, he's definitely a type. He also looks kind of like Al Gore, which I kept thinking throughout the movie. Oh, weird. He does. I hadn't thought about that until now. <laughs> but his performance reminded me a lot of like a like a Tim Curry uh, kind of over the top, uh, especially when he was getting angry. Um, 
which I love that character turn when he just laughs and goes like, you're so naive. And like, it, cause he's been so polite up to that point. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a wonderful mustache twirling uh, moment for his character. Um, and then you have, but then, you know, when you, so I think when you have a character like him where we're not supposed to have any reservations about how much we're supposed to hate him, he's very over the top, but then, you know, you, the main characters aren't. And then even smaller characters like, uh, Richard Roundtree, his character, mm-hmm. uh, who I was really happy to see, uh, Shaft. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's, yeah, he's he plays his part kind of sincerely, you know? That's definitely, like, a type of character. Like, the wise old man walks into the into the uh, locker room when he's alone and it yes. says a couple words to him. Yes, um, exactly. That's very much a, a, a cookie-cutter scene. <laughs> but he, yeah, he, he plays it straight. Yeah. Um, he never, never is his character kind of camped up or, or anything like that. And I'll be honest at the end when he has that, like, you know, I knew Rex Reisner and he, if he was looking down now, he'd, you know, he's proud of his brother. He has a line like that. And I'll be, I would be lying if I didn't kind of get a little emotional <laughs> at that, the line delivery. Yeah. I, so the movie has never really got me on a, on a sincere emotional level, but I do feel a, a sincere exhilaration that isn't simply based on what's happening on screen, but it is kind of attached to the triumph of speed in that finale moment where sure. it's like, um, it, you know, they're really ramping it up. Uh, it's like really, you know, quickly cut and the colors are, are blazing. And that's when you get that tunnel um, effect that now you're, you're talking about the overhead shot. I'm talking about the, uh, the, the red and white, tunnel that yes. signifies like the absolute you know speed he's he's moving through right. um that that part gets me um and uh you know so i have to you know give the film some credit for creating enough kind of narrative absorption and identification yeah um, so okay on these lines i want to know how you feel about you know the question of sincerity or, or campiness with the uh, <laughs> With the revelation of uh, of the I was brother, get to that. yep. <laughs> um, well, you know something funny. So for the past couple months, I've been on a big. Th- this will eventually lead us to my point, but I've been okay. on a big spaghetti western kick <laughs> recently. Okay. Um, I, I started. I decided I wanted to watch a bunch, and then quarantine started, and then I had no excuse, so I started watching uh, like one a day. Um, but. There's a common thing in all the spaghetti westerns that I've noticed where, or in a lot of them, a character's backstory is revealed in like the final moments of the movie is something <laughs> I, I like. I don't know if I'm like, uh, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in the West, uh-huh. um, the, between Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda, literally right when the final duel is about to happen between the two of them, you see flashbacks and you find out why Charles Bronson hates Henry Fonda. And <laughs> that. Right, And so it felt very, it was weird watching a totally different genre of movie, but I felt like this kind of verisimilitude <laughs> between this movie and all the others I've been watching lately, because um, I, and when, when you see a, a, enough tropes, you just kind of nod when they happen. So mm-hmm. when it happened mm-hmm. to this movie, I just started nodding because I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> that I've been watching that. Um, I don't know. So it's interesting because one would say that the, you know, the subtler way to approach it would just be to have the dialogue because the dialogue alone in that scene explains what has happened. You know, that whole, like, what are you going to tell them? And then he has like his whole, like, no, like that's my mistake. Um, 
So I'd be lying if I said the flashbacks didn't kind of make me laugh a little bit because it is it is very like you know he blows it up, fakes his death, gets the plastic surgery. It's um, it's silly, but I also know the movie knows it's silly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess what do you think of it? What's your feeling about it? So that moment does not fail to make me laugh every time <laughs> I watch it, and I'm like, and every time I show it to students, it makes them laugh too, and it's yeah. like. And I, I love any time my class laughs. I don't care <laughs> if it's with the movie or against it or what. It's just I enjoy it shows engagement. So. It shows engagement, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, believe me, I think the, the worst feeling is when you show something that's trying to be funny and no one is, is making any sounds. And that hurts. But I'd much rather people laugh at something. Um, so, yes, every time I watch that sequence, it cracks me up. Um, and I think it cracks me up on a few levels. Maybe just... The fact that they, as you were saying, like held this revelation and, and like the film, it, it, it's such an important and momentous revelation <laughs> happening in the last six minutes. Um, and maybe it's also the, the fact that uh, he outlandishly goes through all of all of this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and you're also like, he's not like telling you. Um, I think it's important that it's not with dialogue. Like he's not explaining with words uh, like oh yeah, I got facial reconstruction surgery. Um, but <laughs> there's something, and this is hard for me to articulate, there's something really funny about watching the images that signify he got facial reconstructive surgery. Right. It's like so, the bandages <laughs> coming off his face, right? That's Yes, yes. And like I got ra- ra- uh, uh, a facial reconstructive surgery to look like Matthew Fox, right? Because <laughs> at that moment, it's like Matthew Fox's face is, is revealed as Matthew Fox, the guy from Lost. Right. Um, it's it's so funny to me on a number uh, on on all those levels, and I can't believe that like the the, the campy possibilities are, are played up here. Right. I don't know if it undermines the sincerity we were talking about earlier, right. um, but it no one I think in in the classes uh, that I've shown the film has ever said, "Oh, I was on board with this movie until this moment. <laughs> it was so unbelievable." <laughs> no one has right. ever said that. Yeah. Um, they're always like, that was great. And when they say great, they don't mean that was a super fine narrative decision that engaged <laughs> me fully and that wrapped me up in the, in the story. Right. They mean that was great in the sense of what a funny, self-conscious kind of over-the-top <laughs> gag it had me in stitches. And it also, um, it's what part, part of what makes it funny is that it's like a double twist because yes. there was a suspicion early on, oh, I think Racer X, Racer X could be my brother, Rex Racer. That's so that's there's that there's that subtle clue early on in the movie. Um, and, and so there's that. Yeah, he could be my brother. And then the twist sort of midway through is he takes off the mask and it's no, I'm just I'm not your brother. I'm Matthew Fox. Um, right. And then the fact that the, in the final moments they go ah, double twist. He actually is the brother, um, which is it's just the, the, the idea of that. That double, you know, double, triple crosses, they get farcical up to a certain point. <laughs> they do. And they do. That's funny. But I also, if I'm going to get a little academic about this, I think um, there is a, uh, there's a shame to him in that final scene where he's like, he's kind of in the shadows because the first time you see him, he's in the shadows too. And mm-hmm. at the end, he's kind of in the shadows. He's sort of like looking over his shoulder and he says like, well, if, you know, he says something about like, if that was a mistake, it was my mistake to make 
uh, or something like that. So he's kind of acknowledging yes. it might be a mistake to not reveal himself to his family. Um, mm-hmm. And so I feel like when you put him up, up against Rec or up against uh, Speed, mm-hmm. they kind of complement each other's arcs because Speed is somebody who stayed true to who he was and mm-hmm. didn't sign the contract with Royalton and succeeded in the end. Um, he was rewarded for staying true to who he was, whereas Rex decided literally to not be who he was and to change his face and is kind of living with a certain amount of shame because of it. And Ooh, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm re- reading too much. I think that's opinion. quite good. No, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's right on the money. Yeah, because okay. it's important to think about one of the like, very purposeful like thematic arcs is the parallelism between Speed and his brother. It's like offered to us quite explicitly you know, in that sequence where, you know, uh, Rex is leaving, sorry, Speed is leaving the house and his little brother, you know, in the same framing comes up to him and asks him the same questions. And, yeah. Spe- you know, it's, it's meant for us to think about how parallelism, parallelism works in movies. Right. Um, and that's a nice way to, to think about, you know, how the, how the film uh, gives them very distinct, uh, you know, choices and resulting character arcs. And sometimes when I, you know, rewatch the film, I forget that he doesn't reveal this to, to speed, but he only reveals it to um, whoever he's talking to and to, and to us. Yeah. Um, that it does have this, like, I will forever be a right. secret that only you, the <laughs> spectator of the speed racer universe will know about. Like he'll be this character that will yeah. like secretly, and I'm sure this is what the cartoon does. Um, but you probably know more uh, than I would about this, that you, like, you have this character maybe that you know is secretly the brother, but Speed never does. Yeah, that is the case in the cartoon, too, okay. which is why, you know, if they revealed it at the end, they'd kind of be breaking the rules of the cartoon where it's sort of, it's an alter ego situation. He helps Speed, so in a way he still gets to continue being his older brother and helping him, sure. uh, while at the same time not revealing that he literally is his older brother. Um, and and that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that's straight out of a cartoon. I think in the cartoon, he actually didn't even get facial reconstructive surgery. I think they might have added that for the movie for quote-unquote realism. <laughs> so, because, you know, you'd think really you'd recognize your brother's, you know, jawline or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so, but, so there is that aspect uh, to the movie, but... Um, so he is just a mask. I mean, it makes sense. He is just a masked person yes. named... Uh, Racer X. Yes. Um, that because he's masked, uh, our protagonist just doesn't know who he is. Right. Okay. Um, um, he doesn't gotcha. know that Racer X is his brother Rex Racer. Uh, I do think there is a little missed opportunity in the fact that when he does, when Racer X first sees his own family, there isn't like. Obviously, I guess they haven't revealed to us that he's Rex Racer yet, but he's just kind of there. Like I remember it cutting to like this wide shot of them after they fight some ninjas in the hotel and he's just kind of talking to him. And I like, or I thought this would feel complete if there was a, a look on his face of seeing his family again, you know, or some kind of mm-hmm. recognition, mm-hmm. Um, which obviously that would clue us in on the fact uh, if, you know, we hadn't had enough of a clue <laughs> up to that point that he might be the brother. Um, it does feel like a little dramatic missed opportunity, which is such a small uh, chink in the armor. <laughs> sure. Well, can I ask a small question? When you first watch the film and then they, exp- and they explain in the second twist that it's not when he takes off his mask where you're like, oh, okay. Or it was it because <laughs> you knew it was Matthew Fox's jaw um, 
and you're like, uh, like, I'm, I'm curious, were you sincerely startled by the fact that it was the, <laughs> the, the, the brother? I, so the, I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, the moment it cut to him, because after that amazing opening sequence when Speed is doing that race, you cut to Matthew Fox sitting in the dark and somebody's like, he'll be great. He's like, yes, if they don't destroy him first. And mm-hmm. my first thought was, oh, that's the brother. He's still alive. That mm-hmm. was the first thing I thought. Um, and then later he's, you see him again. And I just, I, I genuinely kept thinking he was the brother. And like, cause I wasn't familiar with the racer X character from the cartoon. Um, but then um, there, but I was pretty dead set on the fact that he was going to end up being the brother. But then it was the fact that it was so obvious. I was like, this must be a red herring. And, you know, he, <laughs> he and then uh, race or, or speed starts, he's talking out, he's thinking out loud about it. He's talking to his girlfriend about it and stuff. And so I was like, oh, okay, he can't be the brother then. So then when he takes off the mask, nice. I, cause I did, I knew he was, I knew he was, uh, a different actor because you sure. can tell, but I just thought, Oh, Matthew Fox could have been the brother grown up. It's been a while. Um, but then at the end where it's like, bef- as we're getting into the scene where he reveals his whole backstory, it's once that scene began, I went, Oh, they're going to reveal his brother. Like, it's just kind of the uh, way that okay. it cut to that scene. There was a feeling of, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That disbelief, but, but it's, um, yeah. Well, what about you? Did you, how did you feel about the, were you convinced at any point, do you think? I mean, I was genuinely surprised, and I think that's part of the delight and the laughter. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh, really? Right. Like, um, it's kind of ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, and anytime facial reconstructive surgery is the means by which someone <laughs> looks different from how they did in the past, because as you were saying, cinematic convention does not necessitate that one person can, like, one person being played by a different actor. Right. Like, we can just say, oh, it's just a different actor playing the person later. Just right. like, and I, and I sometimes I ask students when I, they watch Vertigo, uh, you know, when you see Judy um, for the first time, even if you recognize it as Kim Novak, you might still be aware of the cinematic convention that Kim Novak might be playing a different character named Judy. Yeah. Um, like that they might not be one and the same person simply because you recognize the actor. Like right. the conventions are too are too various um, and too flexible to allow us to kind of jump the gun on that interpretation. Um, right. So yeah, I was gotten, um, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh, this movie!" I was like, and I was clapping at that point. I was like, uh, "This." <laughs> did you suspect early on that he would have been the brother, or did that never occur to you until it's until that idea is introduced? I can't remember how I felt early on, but as I as I rewatched the movie, I did feel um, I. I was reminded that um, the first time we see Rex um, before he's introduced as, no, sorry, the first time we see Racer X. (laughs) (laughs) Right. See, it's hard to say. Very distinctly (laughs) different character. (laughs) Um, The first time we see Racer X, it is, you know, I think as you mentioned earlier, um, preceded by the line, his brother would be so proud to see him. And then we see the face of, um, or at least we see his interlocutor and then we see him. Um, like literally watching over his brother um, and making some comment. So yes, they, but that's that's what you do in movies. You give them a little a little taste for replay value, or you you tease their inferences if they're very sharp viewers. I am not a very sharp um, kind of like uh, inference making viewer who can predict the plot as I'm happening. Like people who watch a lot of movies are very good at this. 
I don't have like the the mental acuity to like do that in addition to following <laughs> the plot as it's being given to me. Like sure. I just I'm just not that kind of movie viewer, but I I am impressed by people who can do this. Um, and sometimes my my friends will like nudge me like, you know, this person's gonna die in Act Two, and I'm like, <laughs> all right, all right, you've seen movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's uh, you made a good point about facial reconstructive surgery in in, in film and how. It is funny because it's just, it's automatically a silly idea because it feels like a, a plot cheat, kind of. Um, yeah. And it's why Face Off is so great. Right. It's why Face Off <laughs> is a masterpiece. Um, there's, a, well, I was also thinking of uh, The Long Goodbye. That's a movie where in the original book there was facial reconstructive surgery. And, that's, and that was a big element of the story. And in the movie, the Robert Altman film, that's nowhere in the movie because I think they knew their limits and they knew that that was like, oh, interesting. Not, that wasn't a convincing thing to, to, to do in film uh, at the time to just have a totally different actor play somebody and pretend that's, you know, yeah, it's the same person. Um, and so I, I think, uh, but it's so funny because it had never occurred to me over the course of this whole movie, the facial reconstructive surgery would have been part of it. But when they introduce it, it feels totally fine. Like it feels like I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, I believe that within the universe of speed racer, I'm not put off by the t plot twist of facial <laughs> reconstructive surgery. Like if this was a plot twist, you know, if this was a plot twist at the end of, you know, the dark Knight, <laughs> then I, sure. I would think differently, but sure. It's also, I mean, I want to say there's something about delivering that information simply with a visual <laughs> signifier, like, right. like, one face goes in to surgery room, bandage, yeah. to remove bandage, different face. Like those three <laughs> images, like imagine Eisenstein is like, we want to tell a story with purely, you know, with, with, with symbols, with signs. Yeah. Like you get the idea of, I mean, it's amazing how, how quickly we can understand something that doesn't actually even exist yet. Like mm. as, like, it's like one of those interesting things that, that we understand intuitively as something that seems possible, but actually really isn't yeah um definitely uh, not to the extent that it does in the movie <laughs> it does in the movies i mean it's weird there are like there's a handful of fairly well-known and well-respected movies in like the history of cinema that involve facial reconstructive surgery i think yeah. there's a book on this on this topic that i came across <laughs> recently that is only on facial reconstructive surgery in cinema wow um there's like eyes without a face right right great movie uh, dark passage have you seen this one I haven't seen Dark Passage. No. Um, also, a facial reconstructive uh, surgery movie with uh, Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. Also, one of the few movies that, like, uh, for like forty minutes, is like a purely um, uh, first-person POV, like Lady of the Lake film. Wow. Um, like, there exists a a nice chunk of well-respected canonical movies. Wow. Um, uh, and maybe it ends with with Face Off. <laughs> uh, you know, the film that really goes all the way with it. Right. Um, it's also, it seems perfect for, for John Woo, who is not afraid to take a kind of um, like over the top. Oh, oh, the, the John Frankenheimer film also seconds, I think is a facial oh. reconstructive movie too. Um, I, well, and then, I mean, face off takes it to a whole nother level because it's also body reconstruction. Cause you're dealing with, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, who have very different body types, and yes. they're like, ah, we just use tubes. Like, that's the explanation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's like an extension. I mean, I've always found it very interesting. 
um, that the body switching film seems to be a storytelling genre that is yeah. uniquely uh, exploited in the cinematic medium. Like right. there's so many movies that hinge on a very intuitive, but also not quite sophisticated version of like the mind body split that right. our, our minds are just like little things that you can just like put places. Um, <laughs> right. And you can like, if you easily, take the brain out of a person, yeah. just put them in somebody else. You yeah. can easily do that. And like freaky Friday is about that. And like the matrix is about that. Like, and so, about- many, <laughs> yeah. so many movies like are predicated on this. Like the new Amazon show upload is, is based on, uh, <laughs> on this like it's such a satisfying uh premise in which to create all of these uh wacky it's like time travel it's like yeah um it makes an intuitive sense to create kind of narrative uh interest but it's not something that is actually true to how minds and bodies work or how say time and physics generally works isn't that funny how there are these accepted rules uh, for facial reconstructive surgery, for, uh, you, you know, how a mind and a body works. I, I would even say, like, something like zombies. They're these fictional ideas that have these very specific rules, and we automatically accept them every time they're reintroduced. Like, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, bandages, like you said, bandages off the face, we automatically, oh, oh facial reconstructive surgery. <laughs> um and, you know, yeah. similarly, if we saw a zombie, if, you, if somebody gets shot in the stomach and they don't die, they get shot in the head. We go, oh, yeah, zombie. That's what you do with zombies. And yes. none of those things are true. It's just kind of the language and, and how we've been shown them for so long. We just accept those as fact. Whereas, like, if you were to portray facial reconstructive surgery in a different way, maybe without bandages, if it was like a... Um, you know, like a, a laser that you point at somebody's face and it reconstructed, somebody might be like, all right, I call, like, I call bullshit on this version of facial reconstructive surgery. Yeah, what about the scarring that always happens with fictional <laughs> facial reconstructive surgery? You become right. like a medical expert. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you need to have some mummy-esque bandages on their head. Right, and, and similarly, like, people get upset about violating the norms of a clearly fictional system like right. zombie fiction, right? Yes. As if violating it is tantamount to violating the laws of physics. You're like, no, 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 zombies don't work like that. You have to shoot them in the head. Or no, 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 to kill a vampire, you can do it one of three ways, but you can't do it this fourth way that this movie imagines. It has to you know, explain some kind of criteria to, to warrant that inclusion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, like a genre convention, feel it feels like knowledge as much as other things that are recognized <laughs> as knowledge feel like knowledge. And, <laughs> right. and so violations of it also like, get us upset. Yeah. Yeah, I think about like Randy in the Scream movies, uh, and that's kind of how I feel about mm-hmm. <laughs> these certain rules. Like, it's like there are rules. Um, I uh, did you did you have anything else that you wrote down that you specifically wanted to talk about? Um, let me see. I know that we got a little off the film, but actually, I I don't mind that. I'm I didn't expect to talk about facial reconstructive surgery, <laughs> me but but now I feel very glad that we broached this. Uh, so now I feel uh, more enlightened about this topic. Um, let me see. I'm looking at some of my notes. I think everything. Um, uh, I, I did. I had this little Evernote file where I created some notes about it, and I, I just want to mention that I did include. 
something that someone shared on Facebook, which was like a gag in, involving uh, Lily Wachowski's uh, Twitter handle. Where uh, yes, it's, 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 oh, you saw this with the, the, the red pill thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, for for I, I suppose for li- listeners, although. Th- the amazing thing is that the gag uh, becomes a rather academic gag if you read it from top to bottom. It works yes. on a number of levels. Yeah. Um, but for listeners, it is a, a Twitter page that starts with Ivanka Trump's Twitter handle that says, taken! Exclamation mark. And under that is a response um, by Elon Musk saying, take the red pill uh, right. with a little... Uh, uh, red rose. And for um, context, taking the red pill, it's a reference to the matrix in which taking the red pill means waking up to reality, but has correct. been appropriated as, as awakening to uh, right-wing politics, basically. Taking the red pill means accepting that you're a Republican or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Um, and under that, uh, Lily Wachowski replying to Ivanka Trump says, <laughs> fuck both of you. Uh, <laughs> well, um, do you... The the funny thing is, the first time I read that, I, so, for some reason, I wasn't connecting the fact that Lily Wachowski was, wrote and directed The Matrix, which is where that reference came from, because the idea of the red pill has been so appropriated by the right at this point, Mm -hmm. that my thought was, oh, well, Lily Wachowski, you know, she's a a, a trans woman, Um, she likely does not appreciate... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right-wing politics so that was just her reaction so then when it occurred to me that she's actually the authority on all references to the red pill that that made it so much better oh are you saying that at the moment you had forgotten that take the red pill came from the matrix yes yeah oh wow okay i wasn't see, even this... connecting those things <laughs> oh see that is amazing and i've talked with my friends about this i'm like do people actually know that the red pill comes from this movie, The Matrix, which I think most people have heard of? Did you just, did it slip your mind it's, or what? It slipped my mind because I think, because red pill has just been so, I, yeah. nowadays I only hear it in the context of politics and not, and not in Matrix references anymore. Yeah, I know that's, that's astounding and, and frightening. Um, <laughs> but absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, taking, you know, the idea of taking the red pill. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you're going to read uh, Matrix as political allegory, it makes more sense as a leftist film than a conservative one, though I, there are plenty of readings that suggest otherwise, simply because people like to do interpretations. They also like to take phrases from movies and make them the banner of right-wing politics. Um, but, you know... Yeah. Uh, well, that happens film, quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> it does It does happen quite a bit, and take the red pill stuck. That, that recently happened with uh, one of my favorite movies, They Live, um, I saw mm. people relating, they were like, they, they were making, like, there was a meme where, you know, Roddy Piper puts on the sunglasses and everything's right. saying stay at home. So they were implying that the aliens, the villains in that movie would want us to stay at home now. And I was like, pretty sure like the aliens in those movies were like the corporations, which would be the people <laughs> who would want us to not stay at home <laughs> and right. be safe, you know? Yeah. It's like an easy way which you take, you know, both films, which have these like uh, these little objects that signify a revelation of the truth behind ideology. And it's very easy just to <laughs> make the ideology one side or the other. Right. But both films, I think traditionally are, uh, at least there's a mainstream interpretation of them as, as left-leaning. Um, though I know there are people who have read uh, They Live as a, as a right-leaning film, too, because of the, of the flexibility of interpretation with any right. 
um, overtly kind of wake up um, political message kind of movie. Right. Anybody who uses the word sheeple would, <laughs> would right, right, exactly. Wow. Wake, wake up is wake up is the first line uttered in um, uh, 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 the Spike Lee film. Uh, do the right thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And but it's also the beginning of a, of some of Donald Trump's tweets. <laughs> Um, and well, and then also Speed Racer, I mean, I think is a clearly, uh, sort of, you know, anti, anti, uh, corporation film. Um, it's very non, it's not subtle at all in that, <laughs> in that respect, but also, no. uh, the, the, you know, the era of cartoons it comes from were always, I think, very anti, like, like, um, I remember watching the, the Jetsons, <laughs> that, that cartoon was always like against, um, you know, well, I guess, I mean, the Jetsons to a certain extent, he is like, oh, he works a white collar job, but like Mr. Spacely is like the, the, just like this awful boss. And like, I always thought of Mr. Spacely and, and in a way, um, Royalton in this movie is like a literal interpretation of a Mr. Spacely. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, Mm -hmm. but yeah, no, the movie's very clear and it's, it's very pro little man pro, you know, we just want to make our cars here. Cause that's a big part of it too, is John Goodman, you know, uh, pops he wants to make he makes his cars and so there's an idea of sort of it's the anti you've got mail in a way which you've got mail is the story of of tom hanks as part of this corporate conglomerate that buys out you know that like in the end of it it's about the corporate conglomerate winning i uh, know it's great <laughs> which this movie is the opposite <laughs> of that yeah well you've got mail i think is a striking exception i mean i think there is a even though you can read most mainstream Hollywood films as in some way upholding certain normative values, including sure. capitalism. There is a kind I heard, of, I remember your rant about Forrest Gump specifically. I remember. Oh, what did I say about, I don't remember. Just about how it was like an, it was like an, it was like an Ayn Randian fantasy of individualism or something like that. Oh boy. Things just come out of my mouth sometimes. Um, yeah, I had a great rant in my gender and sexuality class. That is the oh. only rant that I ever really think was a good one. It was about A24 films. Um, <laughs> I can ask Fabrizio about it because I remember his, he like, he said that was a good rant to me after class. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? Thank you. Because I thought that was my only, my only good rant. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Yeah, there's a way in which like anti-capitalism is kind of part of mainstream cinema um uh and it doesn't necessarily mean that the films are uh are completely uh running against the the normative or or capitalist sentiment um yeah we have like kind of woke uh woke disney films like uh i just taught (laughs) wally you know wally and like pixar films are a good example of this films Mm -hmm. that um model a kind of um overtly progressive agenda but um well, in, in some ways can easily be read as, as you know, hinting at more subtle ways of normativism. Like Wally is like deeply indebted in, in you know, heterosexual romance as the thing, right. um, or like, you know, freedom to choose one's romantic partner as being the thing that defines one's uh, a person. But it's also like a deeply anti-corporate film because of this like Walmart stand-in that is like the, <laughs> right. the, the thing in the film. Um, I actually don't know how I feel about that with respect to Speed Racer. And I'm just curious how you felt since I... Um, you know, I know some of your politics only through 
the, that we have some shared leftist uh, video essays <laughs> that we both watch. Right, right. We're both big uh, Patrick <laughs> Willems and Lindsay Ellis fans. And um, I was thinking of uh, Renegade Cut, who's the oh, most... Renegade, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Renegade he, he's, the, he's the most uh, leftist, leftist of, of, yeah. of the three. Patrick Willems is pretty neutral in terms of uh, his political leanings. He, he just, um, well, he lets them slide occasionally. <laughs> he lets but, them, yeah I, I, yeah, I still, I like all of them, um, but I think Renegade Cut is really making only leftist content. Yes, I, um, I totally, for some reason, yeah, <laughs> Renegade Cut slipped my mind, but yeah, Renegade Cut, sometimes he'll make a video just on politics, like it won't even be about <laughs> movies. Oh, yeah, um, totally. I love the one on uh, on Simpsons and, and Grimes. That one really, yeah, you, you yeah. remember this one? Yes, uh, yeah. I thought that was really good, and it really got me thinking about about that episode. But I won't. I won't go into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I I was thinking. Um, I actually kind of felt I watched his video on Rambo, and I did a podcast on Rambo earlier. And then I think he he kind of disproved a lot of the points I made, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, I guess I was. I didn't think as hard hard enough about this one. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, I agree, especially with in cases like Disney, there is a, a commodification of liberalism, which mm-hmm. is very capitalist. It's to, uh, and it's the way, the same way that I think there's this myth that the media is consistently liberal or consistently left wing, that like CNN or NBC or MSNBC or whatever, mm-hmm. that like a lot of the people, people on the right like to attack them as being like liberal companies. Mm-hmm. But I think they're liberal in the same way that marketing is liberal. The same way that like Gillette has had an ad all about how about toxic masculinity. Right. And, <laughs> and I saw I, I saw people. I kid you. I saw people on Facebook going like, "I'm only going to buy Gillette now." I was like, "You yeah. fools!" Like, that is exactly like right. like yeah. And, and in a way, there's I think something more fun about somebody commodifying your beliefs uh, and using it in the name of capitalism <laughs> instead of... Certainly, certainly. Yeah. But on that very note, see, what I want to do is I want to say that this is a genuinely progressive film because I like right. it. Um, but I haven't really made up, <laughs> which I do all the time. And because we know that the filmmakers behind it are more or less uh, genuinely progressive people. Exactly, um, yes. And they made an overtly um, kind of progressive uh, text with Sense8. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I would say about Cloud Atlas. I just I I could detect some certain progressive elements in it, but I can't speak to it. Right. Um, well, you can definitely find elements of like rugged individualism in Speed Racer, which I guess is I guess, more of a conservative idea. Um, yeah, certainly. So, like, yeah, I think that's there. In the same way that I was kind of I was defending The Incredibles one time by saying I don't think The Incredibles is right wing in the sense of like pro corporations but it's very like libertarian maybe in the sense of individualism uh which mm-hmm. which i think you can make that case for speed racer um and then you can also make the anti-corporate case because that's very clear in the movie uh, i don't know like do you have do you do you have a leftist reading of speed racer yourself? well i was just going to mention one little detail that i picked up on or that i kind of stuck out to me this time as i was watching it um, which is like kind of a subtle thing that Royalton talks about is when he introduces himself to the family, he's the first thing he says is like, look, 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 I know how it seems that I'm like, I'm, I'm the bad guy, but you have to remember that I started this company from the ground up. I was working at this <laughs> other corporation and I had the, the spirit of doing things on my own with my own two hands. I was working on a Commodore 64 in my basement. Like he uses those words. Like, yeah. and I'm like, Oh, like he's doing like the, like the Steve jobs, Apple, like, yeah. um, 
uh, the like the entrepreneurial, like the rugged entrepreneurial independent spirit that is somehow anti-corporation because it is like untouched and pure and and romantic, mm. right? Um, and that kind of seemed like a, like a clever uh, thing to include, right? It was nuanced enough to give us a kind of sophisticated edge to this otherwise flatly evil representation of uh, of corporate greed, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like a nice, a nice little detail. I thought. Yeah, that is that's that's really smart. So he is he he in a way is that person who commodifies the uh, you know the regular person's point of view, and so like he knows how we feel about like billionaire types. So his first thought is like, uh, he's, is that like, Oh, like, like I know what you're thinking about billionaire types. And I, yeah, I do think that's, and then the fact that he still ends up being that type of person. And, uh, in a way, you know, you could read him as a, somebody who got corrupted by how much power he had. If he did start off with a Commodore 64 and, and you know, anybody, a mm-hmm. Steve jobs, whoever can be corrupted by how much power they have. And then there's also a line that John Goodman has where he just kind of says to his face, I don't think anybody should have as much money as you do. Like, that's just kind of a, that, that is a a pretty progressive thing to say. Right. right? I mean, that line in itself, um, it's not really talking about like the, um, the the moral iniquity of his greed. It's talking about socialism in some way, right? (laughs) No one should have as much money as you do. Like that is a kind of like, Bernie Sanders-esque thing to say right. uh, about like just the a moral fact of um, of inequity in, in terms of um, of how much money people uh, yes. have to make. And that yeah. kind of, I think that draws a line between a lot of like the more neoliberal politics of a lot of these movies where they are very pro little man, but it's like pro little man in that every little man should have the opportunity to make as much money as that guy. Where this movie's kind of right. more it's taking it's it's taking the opposition or it's like well no speed does you don't see speed as ever having that much money because they don't believe that anybody you know has the right to possess that much and so yeah i, I think you definitely could we've we've proved it we've proven speed racer <laughs> is a left, they, left-wing movie <laughs> they live in they do however live in a comfortably middle class uh n- n- 90s uh yeah um, you know virtual world that like it seems both like mid-century, like it's from the fifties, but also right. like, <laughs> like I was thinking Susan Sarandon's dress was very like leave it to beaver mom kind of. Yeah. Style. I think they're trying to invoke the 1960s period of the, of the cartoon, but also like the futurism of, of the aesthetic. Yeah. And obviously a lot of that is attributed to the cartoon of them just trying to like, yeah, just recreate the look and the characters. Yeah. Obviously you just have a, you have a distinct American nuclear family, uh, mom, dad, sons, and a monkey, as you have. Yes, and, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> and, yeah, know. in that sense, yeah. I've had students who have really complained about this film in, in those terms, in terms of representation. Oh, okay. um, given, like, um, say, the fact that um, there's a lack of balance between the, the power that, uh, you know, male characters and female characters have, and that sure. the gestures toward um, the power that... Um, uh, Trixie gets when she say dresses up as uh, Tejo, um, or when she say briefly works on the car with everyone to suggest that she has expertise uh, in in the speed family business or in the racer family business. That those things are are still like not not enough. But at the same time, the film clearly is trying to mold a kind of mid century, uh, like as you're saying, cookie cutter, you know, 
heteronormative family universe and then kind of tell the tale through there, right? Right. Is, is a movie so absurdly faithful to its, <laughs> to its text that it's difficult to ascribe um, uh, cultural values? But, right. you know, I still, you know, I still kind of uh, invite those, those, those critiques. And yeah. um, I, I've been, like, starved to, like, read criticism about this film. Um, yeah. There's really not a lot, at least. Um, Patrick Willems did talk about it in one I in saw his realism that. video. Yeah, yeah, I, I just came across that um, yesterday. Um, and there's a there's a book that I just started reading that came out on the Wachowskis. Um, okay. That I was that's like you know academic book that I was curious about. Um, also, shout out to MSU Justice Neeland and Jennifer Fay are the editors of this book series, which is directors, and this is yes. the Wachowskis. I have Justice's book on David Lynch, uh, which is a great book too. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Um, so I have been kind of interested in, in, in takes uh, on this film and. Um, the uh, the writer of this um, of this book takes a kind of overtly uh, kind of trans centric lens and kind of looking back at the, uh, the oh. work of the Wachowskis to think um, how right. how uh, trans identity and also like trans studies as an academic discipline right. might be Which, a fruitful lens. Both of the time, I'm looking at the back to the case. They were both at the time of 2008. They were both the, Wachow- the Wachowski brothers as they build yes. themselves at the end of every <laughs> every movie. As as they build themselves, right. Um, and uh, and it's indeed something that um, scholars certainly have have made uh, uh, made a lot of. And I'm like I'm yeah. curious about it. And they've people have done kind of allegorical readings to look at all the ways in which kind of self transformation um, is is something that's happening a lot in these films. I mean, yeah. it sounds trivial to say like a lot of, the, but but in a way like um, think about Neo and think about you know facial reconstructive surgery and think about like <laughs> two characters swapping each other's um, uh, identities briefly. Um, yeah. The writer of this book like uh, mentions those elements and mentions them mentions those elements as a kind of distinct and important uh, trope that happens throughout um, throughout these films. You know, yeah. um, I'm just like curious to see what people will make of the Wachowskis as 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 directors. Like, cause, right? Because they're the not exactly they the are... darling. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is very interesting to apply what we know now of them to the, that they've both uh, transitioned to uh, being female. It, it is interesting now to look at their previous work with the trans lens that we we might not have used at the time back when they were the, the Wachowski brothers. Like, wouldn't have occurred to anybody. So yeah, that does add a, that adds a new perspective. And you you are right in saying that they aren't quite the darlings because. Uh, I mean, really, outside of the Matrix, I don't know of any movies that people consider to be classics <laughs> by them. No, um, they don't. Um, I think Bound is like the it has like a um, a very a niche, maybe yeah. um, a cult following, and also an academic following. Because, Most people who have seen Bound like Bound. I think. Yes, exactly. Um, a lot of people haven't seen Bound. Um, and then so, I, a lot of their movies are divisive, you know, like this and like Cloud Atlas uh, is... Yeah, people hate that movie. Devices. Some <laughs> people very much hate that movie. But I have also met people who say, like, one of my best friends, it's like his favorite movie of all time. So I... Uh, there is a... Um, all of their movies, though, are pretty ambitious. Like, Right. Uh, and, and formally and also in terms of scope. Like you can yes. think about the opening of Speed Racer, the first fifteen minutes, and the entirety of Cloud Atlas as having a formal similarity mm-hmm. of like this ambition to weave between uh, characters Time. and times. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's like it's always it's always fun and generally productive to think about patterns across uh, directors' uh, line of work, even if we don't have to say 
you know, do that thing where we put too much uh, of a burden on the singularity of a of, of right. an author or set of authors. Such an auteurist. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, yeah. And the Wachowskis don't feel like, you know, like that we need to, to, to do that. But if um, people want to look more at their work um, for any reason, I think it's great because I do think um, they're worth looking at um, in I, more detail. I agree. And I mean, this movie for being a, adaptation of a cartoon show in 2008 i think is like goes above and beyond what we would expect of a product like that you know like we think of alvin and the chipmunks the road ship or or yogi bear or you know that like all of these kind of these like dumped out movies uh i i think and also I, I was one thing i was thinking of watching this was I was watching these great actors like John Goodman and Susan Sarandon in these roles. And I was thinking of like Robert De Niro in the uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle movie <laughs> and <laughs> how he approached that role. And, um, and I don't think you could have gotten, <laughs> I don't think you could have gotten performances this sincere without uh, mm. the direction of the Wachowskis. And uh, there's such a clear vision too. Whereas like I watched for like Rocky and Bullwinkle and, and I think of the directors as, just the being like a guy in a chair who just says when to roll, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. um, so I, yeah, I, I think there's a definitely much more to read into this movie in terms of how it relates to the directors uh, compared to others of this type. Um, did you have a, do you have any concluding statements you wanted to give about uh, speed racer? Um, just that I think people should, see it and if yeah. you're curious i think people should see a snippet of it if they've never seen what it looks like i think that right. really is the uh it was the motivator for me like just seeing 30 seconds of what it looked like uh intrigued intrigued me um yeah. uh yeah no it's a it's a film worth worth watching um and it's a fun film to show to others that's kind yes. of my main great party in movie a uh, great party movie it's a great yeah. film that's, that's one of the reasons i like showing it in class because not a lot of folks have seen it or even better some of my students had seen it when they were children oh and then couldn't imagine why anyone would teach it in a classroom (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um and that's always really exciting for me i yeah um and like i said like i i've i enjoyed this movie uh before i heard that you're teaching it in a class but that definitely gave me a feeling as though I could look, I could watch it again and, and learn something from it and not just, not just my pure enjoyment of the, the colors, which mm-hmm. is such a, I guess a childish <laughs> way to approach like loving movies. But even to this day, a lot of my friends, a lot of my quote unquote, you know, a lot of fil- uh, film nerds, uh, fil- film students that I'm best friends with, a lot of their love for movies comes down to the aesthetic a lot of the times and that's uh and there's and that's what initially drew me to this movie but yeah i do think there's so much more to it and um and then also i think in this age with uh the marvel movies and stuff i I think if as much as i enjoy those movies my biggest problem i sometimes have is uh you feel like a director is making one scene and then like when the action starts it's like you're watching a different movie it Mm -hmm. feels like Mm -hmm. um you can see like the exact moment that the director called for lunch and, <laughs> uh, and the second unit took over or, or a lot of times, I guess they do the effects before the filming even starts. So there isn't as much communication between those scenes where 
when this entire movie is in effect, there's so much consistency <laughs> across the whole thing. Um, not to say that Speed Racer is better than all the Marvel movies, but like it definitely has like this very clear vision and consistency uh, that I think you don't quite get with a lot of the big blockbusters. No, no. Or you get a kind of uh, a loose general realism. I know Patrick Willems talks about the desaturated color palette as being in some sense a unifying principle of most of the Marvel movies um, that like, uh, you know, it gives you an impression that's all in one universe. It also kind of makes things a little more drab and feels grittier, I I suppose. But the level of detail and design element that make Speed Racer a cohesive cohesively designed thing is is mind-blowing um and even individual sequences will give us say like new kinds of things like i've gone on and on about just you know one little detail i want to mention is like um the um i think the second part of the casa cristo race in which you get these moments of dialogue when people are driving that that zaps and zooms back and forth between them (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah like it makes me wonder like oh what if we didn't have shots but instead had zaps like what if like what if the like the cinema like didn't organize it by like instantaneous cuts from one you know spatially displaced person to another but instead like still maintain the sense of continuity by making the camera whiz really fast <laughs> like if you know dw griffith film was like and so you you whiz the camera create the impression <laughs> that you're seeing one environment one yeah. environment it's, <laughs> right it's like little things like that i'm like yeah this is astounding. And I even like, I like to play those frame by frame to see how many frames create the impression of space being joined in a matter of say like a a fifth of a second. Right. Um, Well, I kept thinking uh, like, you know, those fake one shot movies like Birdman or rope or or 1917. Sure. (laughs) And I was like, here's a movie that does kind of feel like you're watching one continuous shot. You never know when one shot ends and another one begins. Cause there's constantly like we, we were talking about the transitions. Uh, there's never like just an ordinary cut. There rarely is in the movie. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the sisters, I can't remember if it was Lana or Lily said something about this in an interview saying in, in movies, shots are like sentences where things just end. And she said, my mind doesn't work that way. And in Speed Racer, I, I created or I tried to approximate um, a, a model of representing time and space that better fit the way my mind thinks about going from one thing to the next. And of course, well, there are perfect. plenty of cuts. Yeah, there are plenty of cuts well, yeah. in this movie. But I, There's plenty of shot, reverse shot, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that kind of thing makes me want to read and hear more from the Wachowskis themselves. Um, yeah. And just a shout out to that book I mentioned. It, it ends, and I started reading this, and it was quite interesting, with an interview between the, um, the author oh. um, and, and I think Lily. Um, Lily is the one who's helming the new Matrix, yes? Uh, no, Lana is. Or Lana is. Lily, okay. I think, is virtually retired from directing. Okay, okay. So yeah, Lana's directing the, the Matrix 4, which means I'm going to have to eventually finish watching Matrix 3. Uh, you so never watched it. I, I never finished. Never- I, <laughs> I, I was watching it, and then I stopped to have dinner with my parents, uh, and then I never went back to it. And that was about nine years ago. So oh, I'll, have amazing. To, I'll start it over from the beginning and, and finish that. That's great. That's, um, uh- <laughs> I don't know if you're, uh, if you're on Letterboxd, but are you on Letterboxd? Or you- I'm not actually, but okay. uh, a lot of uh, my students are on it. And 
I've actually seen some of my students' letterbox accounts because we made this like Google Doc where people put in their favorite movies and some people put in their letterbox. I'm aware of it as a phenomenon. And I think it's cool, but now I feel like I'm too old to start. <laughs> and I feel like I won't get all the movies that I've been watching all my life. As like, I won't get the credit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you if you start watching movies after you've started your letterbox, you can get the credit for everything you've seen. Yeah, I know I love the idea of it, but it kind of satisfies a collector's impulse. And <laughs> yeah. even better, I think it encourages people to to write. Um yes. it yeah. gives a platform for sharing your thoughts in written form about a movie, which yeah. I think is a great thing. Yeah, I, I looked up half star reviews for Speed Racer. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Because that's something I started uh, doing now for, <laughs> for movies on the podcast. Um, the, the, so I found two that I particularly liked. Uh, one says, um, this was written just uh, last month, uh, like a brain-melting mix of the amazing bulk and the fifth element, I felt like vomiting throughout most of it. Mm. Um, the amazing bulk, by the way, which is a, uh, a great uh, Z-grade ripoff of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> you haven't heard of it <laughs> um and then this is my favorite this one's uh, it's a little long but i think this to me kind of encompasses why i really like the movie <laughs> but, but uh encompasses why this person hates it this was written february of this year this is a truly harrowing film i swear to christ that i had ingested no illicit substances on the evening i watched this yet i swear that it got to a certain point in this acid soaked nightmare where i was certain that i had been watching the mess for two hours already and surely we were approaching the climax only to find out that there was another two big races to endure time hasn't been the same for me since i detest this film and what it did to me i was shitting skittles for three weeks after exposure to the neon garbage color palette wachowskis more like watch out skis oh wow what i've said to my friends since that i i know there are technically worse films that have been made than speed racer however it just happens to be the film that i have enjoyed the least out of any movie that i have bothered to watch um you know that's a simple like i almost agree with everything he said but at the same time i'm like i guess i just liked it <laughs> that's the difference yeah, no, there's something wonderful about the negative reactions to Speed Racer. I remember I, the first time I taught it, I incorporated this as an exercise for my students. I asked them to to go check out reviews and then respond to them. And, and I, it was a great kind of um, collating exercise because I saw so many new things that were like wonderful little turns of phrase. Like this, this is pure, purely a gem of, uh, of inventive expression. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I think it's interesting when people use uh, disgust to um, like vomit. I've heard this a lot um, yes. to talk about their experience. Of I guess they're referring film. to the disorienting nature of it, I think is. I would say actually no, though. No. Like I don't like the way, I, at least the consistent way in which people seem to invoke disgust and reactions when they're talking about this film doesn't seem to have be any literal, like I vomited because of motion sickness, but because it's just something that, people translate um, kind of low uh, trash um, saccharine aesthetics into. Yeah. It's like, it's so, uh, it's so trashy or it's so overly saccharine or too colorful that it made, it's almost as if I ingested all the candy. And it's, it's yeah. like one, like, like there's a scene of that, of over ingesting <laughs> um, candy in this, in this movie. Like, um, yeah. uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm not mad at these reviews. Like you, I, I often agree <laughs> with the things that they say, and then I want to be like, but why can't we high five about this movie? <laughs> um, yeah. I like That's, a reaction. Yeah. Um, I think why can't we high five about this movie is a great catchphrase to apply to <laughs> many things that I love. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me on here. Um, it was really fun to talk to you. And I told you before, it was yeah, always fun chatting with you about movies. And always something that I enjoy broadly is simply talking with uh, friends and colleagues and, and students, whatever, about movies. It's like the best part of um, the job if one is lucky enough to, uh, to be in the profession of teaching film studies. But it's also right. like a wonderful pastime um yeah you don't have a like a a soundcloud or a blog or anything that you want to plug oh um no or a book uh <laughs> i'm writing a book uh okay. it'll come out at some point i have a contract i have to finish it by august 1st okay uh shout out to oxford university press um so that'll be out in like i don't know it could be years i don't know how long it takes but it generally takes a long time to get a book out Sure. Um, I've told myself that I should start a website because, uh, you know, self-promotion is a big part of, um, success in academia. Yeah. And, uh, maybe a I'm podcast not, too. Maybe a podcast. Yeah. I'm, but I'm very bashful about, um, any kind of self-promotion. I have an academia.edu page, but that is just a snooze. So <laughs> don't even, don't even look that up. <laughs> um, it has some of my articles I've written, but it's very oh. academic. Um, they are about cinema. But. Are you are you allowed to talk about what your book that you're writing is about? I can. Yeah. I mean, it's it's based on my dissertation. It's also highly academic. Okay. Um, it's about. I mean, but it's actually very related to the film. It's about movement and cinema. Okay. Um, and interestingly, I don't have any big uh, actiony movies that I discuss <laughs> in the film in the book at all. Um, actually, most of the movies are very slow and somber. Um, because once you look at a movie like Speed Racer, if you're going to do close analysis of it, you have to go very, very micro. Um, so, yeah, the book is um, looking at, uh, like, the problem that the movement of the moving image as, like, a thing has posed for film theory as an enterprise. Um, kind of looks at uh, this very obvious and self-evident property of this medium that we call movies and asks very fundamental questions about what it would look like to subject that property to a kind of theoretical analysis. Um, and like, what would it mean to actually analyze movement as opposed to the things that necessarily move? Like, you know, that's the question. So it is kind of abstract in a sure. sense. Um, but hopefully folks who are familiar with um, film theory, I mean, this is a very classical film theory kind of book as you would, taking that class with me would know you have these like people in the first half of the 20th century who are excited by this medium. And they're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. What is this new thing that isn't painting? Right. Uh, what is this thing that is a, like, that's like a photograph, but it moves. Like, is it, it, is it like a photograph that moves or is it like reality without color and that can be repeated? Like yeah. those kinds of questions are the ones that could kind of get me going in this, in this book. Um, okay. Um, yeah. That's I'll buy it for sure. Um, yeah. uh, well, thanks. Be my, one of my few, one, one of six, maybe. <laughs> That's I how can academic at, sales go. <laughs> I can at least get four of my friends to also buy it. I, <laughs> four, 
you also know all of them. So um, that would that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Thanks so much again for doing this. Because um, yeah, this is great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, John. Thank you again for having me. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of We Are Movies. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Shonig for coming on. Uh, Honestly, it is just the best kind of validation in your projects like this when somebody who you really admire and respect lends their time to uh, participate. And um, I'm just eternally grateful to him. I can't thank him enough. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast and you haven't yet, uh, you can always like our Facebook page, We Are Movies. You can follow us on Instagram at We Are Movies Pod. Uh, and also, if you uh, want to leave us a review somewhere, uh, that's that's cool too. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J O H N N Y M O C N Y. I got there first. Nobody took it, and then I had to make it. Johnny Mockney one or something. Uh, I'm the only one, I guess. And so um, that is all for today. I will be back with you again next week with another really special episode. So I'm just, I'm just spoiling myself until then. I'm Johnny Mockney saying, I love your face just the way it is.